I do, the search heavy view, I thought, when I was wondering whether I was even going to get here, given the train, that we'd spend 30 minutes talking about the high-impact pedagogy stuff, yeah? And then I'll talk to you a little bit more in detail about the assessment work that I've been doing and some of the issues with that. Um, now, I've thought about this quite a lot, and I've done a lot of presentations around this, and I thought, you don't want the same. And you don't need the content of the report, because you can read it. <laughs> you really don't need it. I have it in my bag. Um, I am still traumatized by it. And believe it or not, I'm still going through some of those articles, um, which is quite painful. But never mind. But anyway, some really interesting things. So I thought, because somebody said to me last um, September, they, they came to a high-impact pedagogy session that I did, and they said, uh, and then the fundamental question was, so come on, Carol, what is it? And I said, you've got the report, but what is it? And I'm like, ah, ah. So that's what we're going to talk about. What would I define a high-impact pedagogy as? And we're going to allow a bit of time for you to debate it and cogitate over it. And then you can argue with each other and me and disagree. Because I will say, it depends. You know that. I say, always say, it depends. So I'm just going to take you through a couple of things. So, you know, I can use that lovely word about the TEF. And, and we can talk about, are we measuring immediate or longer term gains? Most research is based on short term gains because of the length of research graphs and things like that. And it's far more complicated to measure longer term gains. Okay. That hell-bent about satisfaction and engagement. There's a massive movement at the moment that says the engagement survey is better than the NSS. Is it really that much better? I'm probably invested in saying the engagement one is a bit better because I changed the wording at the beginning of the UK engagement survey to talk about a partnership rather than we do it to you, what do you think of us kind of concept, which I don't really get. Okay, so both of them have got issues. Then we've also got that notion of, if you look at a lot of the work on high-impact pedagogies and you go to all the American stuff, which a lot of people are mining through at the moment, the work of Koo and all those other people, it was really looking at some global things like retention. They're really straightforward, aren't they? Or are they? And then we get all these assumptions about those that leave. Are they weaker? Are those that we lose in higher education weaker? Are they always? We lose some great people in higher education, so that's another interesting one. But they were focused on those things about meeting the criteria, passing the degree, getting a job. I won't go into all that notion about employability at the moment. And then we get on to the things that kind of get me out of bed in the morning, which are things like, is it challenging? Is it worth me not having a day day? Um, does it encourage me to be an independent person? Does it encourage transformation? Does it need to, actually? Maybe it doesn't, and maybe it does. Depends what your objectives are. So, okay, so those are some initial thoughts. So, the big one we've got, that, that notion of the quality of instruction in student learning game. And I think this is a fascinating debate to play out. I'll take you back to when I was a student, 
first time, so I've always been a student, I'm always a perennial permanent student. But in my early days, the students on courses who had really bad lectures did the best, because you had to do all the work yourself. When I was a head teacher, my governor said, what's going on with this class? They do rings better than anybody else. And then somebody piped up and said, the teacher hasn't been here for two terms. So they told us that we should therefore get rid of quite a few of the teachers. The fact was that teacher had taught those kids to manage on their own. She had instilled in them something that would take them through, something far more powerful, but I couldn't isolate her effect. She affected everything those children did, whether it was her subject area or something else. Uh, my degree was predicated on running um, nightclubs five days a week. That's where I got my skill sets from. Not from my geography degree, but that's another story. Okay, so one thing I'm going to say to you, this comes back from a paper I did in 2013, and it was looking about assessment feedback. And basically, what I did, the lighting on that is awful, so I'm sorry about that. Um, I can provide you with the, the articles available free anyway, but I can provide you with the sketchy figure if you want it. But the thing about that was, even if I am marvellous, even if I do everything that is deemed feasibly possible, not all are going to use it, want to use it, get it, or are actually in a place to use it. <coughs> and one of the most powerful things I learned in higher education was to get students to map where they went to for information. And from the mapping, you could work out whether they were impoverished or rich. And there is a very strong social class element to that. There really is a massive, big hole. And there's a lovely article recently, I think it's by Yee. She was looking in America, I think, at um, first-time university entrance compared to um, families that with established roots going to higher education. And she was saying, First entrance, low socioeconomic class are less likely to ask for help because they believe that they should be doing it for themselves. Interesting. I talk to my FE students, they have a very different picture again about the contrast between FE and university and the implications of that. So I think there's some interesting stories about how people navigate environments and what they take and how they use them. But there's some very interesting stories about how some people are empowered to use an environment and how some people aren't. I used to do a lot of work with failing doctors in hospitals, very bright people. So why is it they do one rotation and they're successful, they do another one, they crash and burn? What is going on about certain affordances of certain environments and individuals' reactions to them? And how can we use that in higher education in the pedagogy that we have? So those are just some initial thoughts could wax lyrical about that, but we won't for now. I will talk about it over lunch if you're interested. So, okay, so when I um, dissected all that data, and these two slides I have used before, in terms of what came through, so if you cut away loads of stuff about pedagogy, um, and my favourite mantra is if you can't get students to buy into what you're doing, don't get out of bed. There's some lovely research where people have done amazing things, and yet the outcomes have been relatively limited. And when you've interviewed the students, what's come out of it is they didn't get it. 
those things were not needed in order for the students to do well on the assessment. And the students weren't stupid and they worked that out. I don't need to do this to get X. So some interesting ones. And there's a lot of work at the moment about David Carlos and the assessment work about the notion of trust. Are you credible? Are we trustworthy? And one thing that I'm doing a lot of work on at Southampton is putting in the boundaries. So we're doing a lot of work on student entitlement. I'll talk about that later. About where are the boundaries now in higher education? I only have so many hours in a day. How are those allocated and how do I share that with students in a profitable way that they see that I'm gold dust? Not to be abused, but to be used wisely if they want to reuse me. So those those kind of things. And how does that fit with the notion of monetization and all those kinds of things? So okay, these were the things that I came up with that what I thought were important in, in pedagogic design. So again, a lot of work about real life examples. Some people get very upset saying is higher education not real. Those kind of notions. Um, there's a lot growing on universal design stuff, but people have different interpretations of that. I interpret it, you know, it was first predicated in the building world that you don't build a building with a particular disability in mind, you make sure that anybody with any disability can get into said building. Ironically, from my work on assessment, a lot of assessment excludes people. And actually, a lot of structures in universities inadvertently exclude academics as well as students. If your research focus doesn't fit your return for the rep, where do you go? So we can take it all different levels up the chain from me being a humble student coming as an undergraduate to me being a prom. That notion of access and um, its important one. Um, I think they speak for themselves. Any there that you want me to explain at this point in time? Because I'm not doing the reading the thing out of the slide, because it annoys me. Um, okay, so this is where I've got to. So, how can, so feast your eyes. That if I had to put them together, as this guy said to me, come on, Carol, you're not going to have lunch until you've told me what your high-impact pedagogy would contain. So those are my elements. So informed, inclusive, explicit, relevant, participatory, participatory meaning-seeking, holistic, sustainable, what the hell does that mean? And I've got X factor in there for a good reason. Because I'm also thinking about the things we don't want to talk about. Personality matters, let's have a look. So, okay, so if I look at the informed one, to me there's a big question, why do we do what we do? And I'm not gonna get het up about whether you're research-based or whether you're scholarship-based. There's a lovely article, back, way back when, 2004, by Hargreaves or by about, um, it's, it called it by the think tank Demos. It's called It's About Learning. And he basically said, we eschew practice-based evidence, we treat it like a second class. Why do we do that? Lots of people have been working in various paths in life. They're doing things with a, with a strong knowledge base. But if you actually ask people, why do they design their curriculum the way they do? Why they
they choosing to focus on that content in that session, it's amazing how many times I get have a thought about that. Seriously, I find that amazing. And some of the better work that we saw when we went through all of those articles, those 21,055 abstracts, were the ones that said, there is a real reason why I'm doing it this way. This is because. When I start investigating brain processing stuff in my classroom as a teacher, I didn't know the theory, by the way. I had my personal theory, which was really important, and it related to something I was investigating that I didn't even know the name of at the time. And we sometimes undervalue it, but obviously bringing both viewpoints together is good. So that's one of my things. The other one, this is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I know Hefke have really highlighted this, and there's a lovely report by Mount Zimdus and Co, 2015. Nice hefty thing, if you can't sleep, get me going. But it really is about that notion of, when I talk about the notion of critical pedagogy, it's, does what I do impact differently on different types of people? And one of the projects I'm working on at the moment, we're looking at interventions in pedagogy, and we're looking at who it impacts on and why. And what we're finding, and it's coming through in so many of the articles and pieces of work that we're looking at, that certain types of students may benefit from something, but others don't. And that is actually quite fascinating to actually look. So we've had some small projects at Southampton, some of which have really boosted those who are at the top of the ability scale, however we wish to define that. But it's absolutely caused the others to crash, and vice versa. There are quite a lot of things which will bring your bottom up, but may not do much <coughs> at the top, and from different backgrounds. So I think that's something that everybody should be thinking of when they design things. What happens to X, Y, and Z? Um, I've mentioned it before, an awful lot of projects focus on students that didn't engage, but they don't tell me in the research whether they did worse. From lots of the projects we did in London and Exeter and Oxford, we found that some students who chose not to engage with initiatives actually did fine, thank you very much. And what we worked out was they were able to self-regulate very well, and they knew whether something would assist them or not. Then you get a moral dilemma as if you're in a professional course, should you have the right to opt out? Those kinds. So lots of different dilemmas come with it. Again, coming back to this notion and needed, this is a gap. What are the best approach? When you say we can't measure things, actually at a discipline level you really can. There are better ways to teach particular things. In a previous life as a geographer, there were better ways to teach glacial flow and coral waves. There were fascinating ways to teach slope theory and not so productive ways. There are certain materials and media that you can use and resources that are better for putting across certain things. That, as an expert, we do know, but do we use that? And is there a shared understanding of that? Because I think there can be a much better shared understanding of that. So that was my informed one speed off the other ones, because I only have to spend about 15 minutes on this. The other one I talked about, I've mentioned about inclusivity. And the other thing that came through a lot of this work is also, I talked about beliefs and values as being fundamental. It's perception often that's more than reality in terms of engagement of people. It's perceived to be fair. 
interesting one. And the other one is, to what extent am I excluded because I actually don't have the knowledge base? The elephant in the room is I don't have the knowledge base. So some people would say, I have a really impactful pedagogy. I prepare all the resources ahead of schedule. The whole scheme is available on Blackboard or Moodle, wherever. But if the problem in the room is that the student cannot even understand a single academic article, having 20 or 100 articles on the system is not treating the elephant in the room. And then it's that reverse psychology of, so I'll go pragmatic today, if that's okay, rather than, yeah, is that right? So my pragmatic view is my answer to get students, undergraduates, first <coughs> undergraduates, to, to read difficult articles is for them to come in and tell me all the things they didn't understand in the article. Think about it. It's reverse psychology. So what, do you, what were the things that really, really screwed you over? What things were you thinking, wow, there's just nowhere at all. At which point did you stop? And it's quite fascinating what comes out. And then, okay, so what are you going to do about it? What can I do about it, but what can you do about it? So it's those things. Um, this one comes through in, 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 in the literature very clearly. And there's a big debate about this, about explicitness. How to be explicit. And there's a, there's a two-way debate. So some people say that we're dumbing down higher education, we're mollycoddling. Because if we make things so explicit, a student doesn't have to think, it narrows knowledge. So that's one viewpoint. But there is another viewpoint. If I want to really invest in that library and I want to peruse all those valuable books and I can't even open the key, I have no key, I can't get into the room, then most of my discussions with someone are going to be quite um, banal and futile. They're going to be scratching around the edges of superficial knowledge rather than delving into the depths. So I think, for me, and it's also, going back to Roy Sadler's work on assessment, if I've never seen it, can I get there? If I've, or if you keep telling me I need to be somebody different or I need to be analysing something in a different way, but I've never done that in my life before, try and experiment an interview with undergraduates to try and get them to think on their feet. It's ever so funny, but maybe a bit cruel. So you give them an object and say, right, in, you've got to use this object to explain this concept. And they look at you like you're, yeah. To what extent, and this is another passion of mine, do we knock intuitive thinking out of students in the UK? But that's, that's um, for another time. Okay. <coughs> Some of the strongest stuff we looked at was also about perceived usefulness. And how does it relate to what the students need to do for a degree and beyond that degree. How are they being engaged in doing something that's worthwhile? So if you're looking at programs within your own institutions and you're looking at the patterns of assessment and what students are asked, being asked to do, is it something that would actually want you to get out of it? Or not, is the case may be. Um, there's lots of suggestions of the power of participation, but it's quite lacking in a lot of the pedagogical literature. And for me, it's got to be central in my understanding of a participatory pedagogy. But also what came out of earlier research was being very clear about what's black and white and what's grey, where there is room for participation that's genuine and where there isn't. And I think I'm being unclear about that. 
So for example, I can throw my module handbooks at my students and say it's an evolving document, let's change it as we go through the course, but there are certain things in that handbook that cannot be changed without going through minor major regulatory changes and also getting permission from all the students to change an assessment day. So it's what can be moved, what can't be moved, and why do we need to move it? But again, I want to try doing that without educating the students on, on the design of the module, and it was hopeless. So again, we can set students up to fail magnificently because if you don't have that basic understanding, you're asking them to comment on things that they can't comment on. And a lot of peer networking activities are, are, are set up, I think, quite badly. Um, now, this is a controversial one for some people. Does, I, does it need to be meaningful? Does that learning need to be, learning need to be meaningful? I, I ask that question, and I say yes and sometimes not. So, for example, if I'm learning, if I'm training someone to be a doctor and interacting and they're all doing this kind of thing, yeah, it needs to be pretty immersive. If I'm teaching somebody factor analysis and get into, and here we have, and again it's about causes for causes and where you set your bar. Now really, if my student's going on to do a PhD and they need to know all the governance that underpin factor analysis and all those kind of things, they don't understand the basics, they're going to get stuck. If they're doing it for a one-off thing that they're using for a particular project and they're never intending to use it ever again. So we have problems about how we define meaning. And I think that's something that needs to be really um, made very clear in what you're trying to achieve with those students. Because some games are quite, we're doing this, move on. Other things are so all-encompassing. And for me, I would want assessment to encourage immersion. I would, so basically, I talk about owning your subject, owning your language, students owning their discipline. And if we don't require that of them, then we can't blame them if they don't buy into it. And there's a lovely quote I'll give you later about every minute and every second of the day we all triage our own limited neural resources and we choose what to bother with and we choose not to what not to. Every single one of us does it pretty automatically. You choose what to attend to and what not to attend to. So why do we want them to attend What's so important about it, and how are we getting that across? Um, and it's quite interesting, but it requires training again. That notion of challenge, some people say to me, but if I make it too challenging, the students are not going to be um, positive about what I do. Some of our best model responses at Southampton are where the students say it was incredibly challenging, our marks were lower. But we valued it far more. But they had been trained in why it was valuable. That notion of perception and reality and also buying in. Had they bought into the fact this actually was going to be quite tough. And so I put there about rewarding that depth of interest. That depth of involvement. And I've put in there, because I'm talking now, I was thinking in my pedagogy about willingness to offer. How willing are students to offer up their ideas for scrutiny? Go back to Ron Barnett's work. It's quite interesting, and then you get back to the elephant in the room, and it all comes back to relational dimensions again. So, okay, and I will talk about this in a little bit of time, about how do we look at something in an integrated way? How 
do we look at how what I does I do in a particular model? How does it feel into somebody else's? How are we supporting a student in developing that deep learning and understanding? Or are we letting them have sound bites? So how does it connect? There's a lot of work on connecting with different modules, connecting with the environment, connecting with practitioners. How do we connect in a world where you might be parachuted in to teach a tiny bit of a module? How do you still do that connecting? Because that's a really tough job to design that. Um, and one thing that's come with quite a lot of the work I've been doing with professional bodies, so schools and medicine and law, is how do you, how within what you do, do you actually educate the individual how to work within a context? How do they maintain sense of self within a particular context? How do they take bits from different contexts and apply them, change them, transfer them, adapt them? Because they don't just lift from one place to another. So it's all that notion of alignment. And then we get onto this world that, this is a world that is in danger of being so overly abused. I hear it everywhere. Do you hear it everywhere? Yes. It's everywhere. Everyone's going on about sustainable. I use it an awful lot. It's a bit like style. I use it an awful lot. So, you know, I use it from a pedagogic thing. Sustainability in, in, in the day bound world um, is, is about students managing it for themselves in simple layman's terms. He differs for Diet from Diet Hounsel because he was basically saying it's about basically preparing students for the future but enabling them to do well in the moment. And Diet Hounsel had it the other way around and said, we need to do it the other way around. But there's also that notion, I think, that we've got to be real and I'm a pragmatist. So I come onto an economic model which many people in pedagogy find abhorrent. And I call it bang for buck. I'm not going to chump on you, I really promise. But, um, but that notion is, what came through the high-impact pedagogy's work was quite powerful. Because I can say, there are all these things we can do, and they make such a difference, but they take time. They take a lot of resource. And then what we discovered, there were lots of little projects where people did tiny things. And they had significant effects. And I think that was quite sexy. I thought that was quite exciting. I could get people to buy into them, but you should think why they worked. What was it about them? And would there be any sustainment of that? Or if we looked at students, would we go to sustain those efforts over time? So I'm quite interested in how we do things in a more efficient way. I think a lot of, a lot of work we do is, is very labor intensive, but not as efficient as it could be to get the desired result. And that notion of marginal gains, which is a bit by Brailsford, and let's not go into the cycling world at the moment too much, but I've walked in that bag. Um, but there is that notion about if we make small improvements in a certain area, does that have like a cumulative effect? No. That cup of coffee that gives you a 2% edge. Yeah? What in pedagogy is equivalent to that cup of coffee? And there are, and we found lots of little cups of coffee. There are lots of simple things we can do within pedagogy that actually can have quite a good effect. So I thought about encompassing those. And then lastly, we don't want to go there. We read the Times higher full of it all the time. But at the end of the day, if I go back to good old Noel Entwistle from donkeys years ago, I'm talking back to the 70s. And he said the three most important things were 
And he called them the three E's, but I had a go at him because I said, clarity of explanation isn't an E. Because well, it is an E if you get there in the end. But he was saying <laughs> that that explanation, the enthusiasm and empathy are fundamental. Um, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it goes into what I call the stir-fry effect. What I mean by that, folks, is <laughs> we can have all the right ingredients to make a very good stir-fry. But you and I both know there's an order to things. And two people with the same ingredients do not make the same quality stir-fry. So for me, it's that creativity which requires that in-depth knowledge about how you blend all those things to produce that pedagogy. And that is something which is very difficult to measure. But I think people don't want to go there to be at that one as a factor in the high-impact pedagogy, but it's fundamental. It also allows a lot of people off the hook, by the way. Think about it. It allows a lack of preparation sometimes and a lack of, a lack of to, to carry a lecture through. But without those essential qualities, getting the information across is limited. And it's how you put it together. How do you identify what those core concepts are? How do you identify what those threshold concepts are? And I think that's very powerful. So I'm going to stop at this point for, for about 10 minutes and I'm going to say to you, have a think about those. What's missing? What would you argue with? So have a conversation in your threes or fives or fours, however you are mingled, and we'll come back to that. So have a think about those 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 items. And in some modules, in some courses, I would say some things are more important than others. Up to you. So about, we'll give you ten minutes. <coughs> okay, you've got the pack. Um, okay, now. Let's go back. So it's quite interesting. I was going to give you this later, but you started talking around that, that thing, didn't you? There's a lovely model. It came from medicine. And it's, it's by Van der Sweet et al. Developmental space. I like it. It's a very simple, simple, simple concept. And it was basically looking at two dimensions. And it, it's, it's, um, so what in the context enables and disables and when I do this, I kind of look, what in the context enables, disables me? Which of those things can I get around and which ones can I not? And as an educationist, if I can't, where do I invest my energies? It can be quite, life, it can be quite powerful with a team who are feeling very crushed. And I say, well, okay, you can't do that, but this is what you could do. So rather invest energy in that, invest it in what you can do. Because there will always be something you can do. It may not be how you would like it. Then the other one at the bottom is um, one of my colleagues changed it to socio-economic. It's, it's called, it's socio-emotional. Um, I thought it was quite funny. I said, maybe your socio-economic condition is affecting your emotions. But anyway. Um, especially if you work in higher education and you're losing lots of your pension. Um, so anyway, um, so again, what are those facilitators and barriers that as an individual brings? Now I do a lot of that with students in terms of what do you bring that helps? And what do you bring that actually gets in the way? 
to the basics, you know, if I've got a student who's only ever going to listen to any negative thing I say to her, I say, welcome to my world. Mm. Um, I'm the same. But how do we manage that, accepting that that is who I am as an individual? What strategies can I use? But accepting that I have that kind of thing going on. Because some of those things, there we go, we're not going to be able to change. But <coughs> it can be quite a very simple thing to do but worth having a look at in terms of what is the problem. Yeah? Okay? Um, it's a nice paper, actually. I mean, it's a nice paper to read. So we've looked at that. So anyway, I'm going to go backwards and forwards. So one of the things I would say if I was trying to look at pedagogy, um, and I wrote a whole book on this, and it was all based on the cognitive stuff, but I was saying that Really, before you get going, what are the beliefs and values underpinning your pedagogy? And I worked a lot with health scientists, and we met with a lot of different teams. They all used different words to describe what they believed was what they were doing and why, but they meant the same, a lot of them. And so we worked for a whole year, seriously, on a common language. Because if we had a common language, it would work better with the students. And there was lots of debate. There were some things that didn't fit. Fine. Acknowledge, we're not all going to fit, but there were things that, that, but we had a core number in, of things we could buy into that mattered. And um, one of the other things is I, 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 I use a lot of psychometric tools and things because that's where I work, but, but what tools broader can you use that really support learning? And what are the most valuable ones in your arsenal that you can use? Um, have we really thought those through? Uh, I've mentioned a bit here about that sensitivity to the learner context and to the lecture context, actually. Um, it'll come up in this thing I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and again, you know, I t I'm, I'm kind of top and bottoming this. And again, these are not linear <coughs> or hierarchical. But the key things for me is um, the beliefs and values and the autonomy part, to me, are the most fundamental things in pedagogy. So if you take away autonomy, both the lecturer or the student, I, I think it's massively problem problematic. <coughs> but then we get into problems in terms of what that means and what choice means. Because I said one of our big projects was when we gave students totally free choice of things, those that regulate badly, of course, chose badly and did badly. So we set them up to fail. So it's, I changed the word to negotiated choice. Be careful where you put your choices. And also, if you watch the TED video, it's a very good one about how choice is the anathema of the 21st century. And I agree with that. Um, okay, so I'm going to take you to my model. Okay? Have you got this? You've got this in your pack, haven't you? Yeah. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, not too long. Now, I'll be honest with you. Why is it a dodecagon? I was learning to draw again. I wanted 12 points, it's a good diagram. So, okay. Um, there's a whole suite of resources around this, and I've just developed some new ones. If you want the whole thing, um, I've got a thing you can sign it and put your email address, and then you can access them all. And the whole point about them is there is a PDF, but there are also some Word documents. So you can adapt them to suit your needs. 
Um, and that's what we've been doing across different disciplines. Now, what I was trying to do, I was saying, if you were trying to look at that notion of the high-impact pedagogy, what would it look like in assessment terms? And somebody said to me, it's all very good, you've got all your theories, all your different constructivist bits, your cognitive bits, your social critical stuff, your loving booting and power and all that and tools, but what does it mean for me as a lay person, as, a, as an educator? What does that mean I need to think about? Because I'm sorry, the theory is frightening. So I said, okay. So we tried to work out, and I worked on this across all disciplines. So we went around every faculty, and um, we also worked with students quite a lot. And the dominant issues the students with in assessment was assessment literacy, one hands down every time. But their elephant in the room was about assessment literacy. Fundamental, what good was. Going back to Roy Sadler stuff, don't know what good is. And we found when we were working at the, um, the Institute of Education, a lot of master students we interviewed had done well, but they didn't know why. We thought this was fascinating. So I said, do you think you could do it again? We don't know. I said, did you look at the assessment criteria? I think 10 of the students I asked said, what criteria? Um, fascinating stories we, we got from students who did very well, as well as students who did less well about that. Um, and you know I talked to you about quick wins? Some very quick wins we got from a lot of this work was if you've got loads of time on your hands, give students a model handbook and get them to articulate in dance, no I don't, um, what that assessment means. It's amazing. And I play lots of games with students and, and, and lecturers where I, I, I give them the same task and see what the outcome is. And it's, you can get out 30 students, you can get 20 permutations of the same thing. So how things fit together, how my brain works and how I see them, how a student sees it, could be two completely different things. And the same for a lecturer, how they see that pattern of how everything works together. I've said I've spent a lot of time on entitlement by putting in boundaries about, hi folks, this is how much time you have. For this, being very specific, this is what you need to do. <laughs> Give me a classic student comes to me for a personal tutorial, they email me 10 times. I think they're desperate to come see me. I'm like, gosh, is this urgent? Only at home, it's so bad. Boundaries. And um, she comes, I say, come on, talk to me. I've got nothing to say, I haven't seen your face for a while, but come and see. I said, so my time is golden, and you don't want to talk about anything. So, if that notion is where we tried a project where students only had 15 minutes with a tutor, we said that's 15 minutes is your goal, girl, so you can ask whatever you want in that 15 minutes. It's a bit like that 30 minutes of free legal time. Do you ever go for that 30 minutes of free legal time and not actually wear the lawyer out? You wouldn't, not. So it's how you use that time productively, but where are the boundaries? Um, and also about this notion about what is it to be working in this particular discipline. There's some lovely work by a woman called Bluick who talks about if students can't connect with that community, they're more likely to leave. Doesn't matter how good they are, if they don't see an identification with that group, it can be problematic. Now again, these do not work in isolation. Again, we could put them all in, that's why it's called integrated. However, what we have done 
is also looked at, got programme teams to map and students to map, because here's the student one, where we get students to map where they think there are on this. Do I do, I do very little on this one? Do, do I absolutely, I'm a, a diva, I'm fantastic, I'm a five. How do they plot their role in this process? But coming back, in my university, we identified three things we wanted to focus in across the university, knowing that all of these things work together. So the three things we focused on came from the students. What do you think those three things were that they really wanted to focus on? Any suggestions? Explicit criteria. They wanted to clarify what constitutes good and the explicit criteria and what the criteria meant. Could they learn? Could we rewrite them in a language that they could access? The other one was, it's kind of mixed in here because these feedback ones, and again, they're, they're integrated. But the other one was focus feedback. What was good? What let you down? What dragged your mark down? Or even if you did really well, what could you have still done better? And then how did you do it? How, how could you improve it? It's being really precise with the feedback was the second one. And uh, no, and sorry, and student entitlement was the, was the other one. We don't know what we can have, what we can take, what we need to give. We don't know those requirements. So those became our, our three areas. And I've put here, along here, and I have that meaningful dialogue, it came up earlier, that if students haven't prepared for that dialogue, then the quality of that dialogue is poor. So how do you, in terms of entitlement, build that in to that as an expectation? Um, what came through from working with academics, which was something that I never had in this model from all the research I had done, because this all came from my research, the one that hadn't come up was working in different universities was quality assurance literacy. Academics not knowing what they could or could not do, and the lovely emergence of the myth of assessment. And it's alive and kicking in every faculty across the country and probably across the globe. You can't do that because and when you try and delve down into their university policy, there is no reason why they can't do X or, oh, this feedback sheet is really pointless. I said, why do you use it? It's taking you half an hour to even go through it. It's the most inefficient way of doing things. Because we have to, because our faculty says we have to. Go and see the faculty person. Or this is going to have to go through major regulation, major regulatory change to take three years. Really? Have a chat. Doesn't really need to take that long. So I think we are. I mean, when I've worked in lots of universities where things have to go through like ten or twelve committees, and it could be just one person say no, and then you're back to the drawing board. But things are changing, and I think my argument: we've had, probably our policy assurance sessions have been the most powerful because what they do is they empower you to be able to make the ch to, to say actually we don't need to do this. But also, what also came out of this work was people making micro changes that were then having negative impacts on other people. So that needs that long game saying, if we all make these minor changes, we destabilize. And then when we looked at all these things about, we've talked about some of these things today, um, but the way models time their assessment, the type of assessments, and all of those things really impact on things. 
I'm hoping you know to do this notion of resources. Do any of you still have the system where you don't release things until a certain date to students? I don't get very upset about that, what we're saying. I've worked in a lot of institutions where you're not allowed to release the materials until the Friday before the... And I'm like, what are we doing to people? Are we saying, you are a moron, you can only find this folder at this time because you're going to be so overloaded. It's more down to how you organise the content and how you teach students to navigate that content. Another very easy win for us, um, which was on the feedback stuff, was very much around cutting the length of contact time with students and allowing 15 minutes per session to go through how to find resources. It was the biggest gain I got from everything. Now you could say students are not one of my favourite games from one of the universities we did work in. They love the extra sessions that they could have to get feedback advice. They love those extra sessions. And that checked. And there were 20 students that said they love these extra sessions. Very small sample. And I actually checked with the lecturer. And only three of them made use of these extra sessions. But 20 of them said they were fantastic. And I'm like, what's that? So I went back and installed the students. And it goes back to that notion of perception. So going back to that notion of entitlement, I think business schools seem to do this really well. They have that notion of contact hours, and I love it when I look at a friend of mine who says, I'm around for one hour a week. Yes. But no, they have that contact hour, 12 to 1, you can get me on this day, phone me, you can pop in, I will be there. That notion of the being. It's a bit like ordering online. I never order online unless I've got a residence that's got a patch on the dress for the company and a phone number because I'm very Luddite-ish and I like to know that it actually exists. But it's that notion of, if, can I get it if I need it? But I just need to know that it's there. I may never, ever make use of it. But then, what came from doing all this work? So we've got a load of projects going on looking at the tiny things we're doing, and then we're thinking, how can we measure what we're doing? So if we're trying to improve literacy, so we've come up with lots of different tools to measure different bits of, of this work uh, that are very fine-grained. And then what, then what came out of it was people were saying to me, okay, so if we were trying to look at quality assurance and all those kind of things, and absolutely make sure... So a lot of the work has ended up focusing on Academics, not students, by the way, at the moment. So we thought, okay, what could we do? So we thought, okay, so could we go through? This won't show very well, so I apologise profusely for this because it's appalling. But I was trying to just show you. I'll, I'll give you these quotes in a minute because they're quite entertaining. Right, that's awful, I know. So what we did is we thought, could we go through the model? like reading. So we said, okay, so we'll get it down to, to three pages on, on these are the absolute core, but then if you want to look how you map it to things, 
We'll get it down to eight pages, but, and that will be every assessment policy in our handbook at the university in one document. So we don't need 10 or 15 documents. We just need something much simpler that I can understand and that my colleagues can understand. So at the moment, our students' union have got those, and they'll probably change the language of those, and that's fine. Because we have, as part of this notion of engagement, where I've moved down the road of, and I've tried to get that, and so where we're working, back, sorry, back to the model, uh, from the student thing, is I do think that that, that that notion of engagement and how you're, how we engage in students is that I actually, when we developed the assessment feedback principles on page 15 of the booklet I've given you, if you can't see, the students took those to the governing body, not me. The student body took those. And, and that's the way we're working it, that the students will actually find that. I will give them the research and where they need to go. They will fine-tune the language and then we'll also have an argument. We had a lovely argument on the feedback principles on page 15 because they didn't want any choice in it. They wanted me to, they wanted me to get rid of choice completely. And I said they needed to, we needed to train them to make good choices because that's part of being human being and learning to get out of bad choices is probably one of the most important things. And learning to be uncomfortable and failing and still getting up is probably one of the most important things we can teach human beings. So I said, so we have a big debate about the meaning of words. And it's quite fascinating. And different disciplines, student discipline, actually picked up different things, which is also quite fascinating to capture. So that I just thought I'd show you that that is the journey that we've been on. But then we came up to another level about all the things and the blockades and the barriers to doing something good in these areas. And so we're working with individual lectures now, implementing small. And some are saying, I did all of this, but guess what? My pear shaped. So it's also, I'm going back to, did you share with the students what you were doing and why? And was what you're doing appropriate to what your end game was? Or was it a distraction? So it might be, once one person came back to me and said, right, okay, we invested in wanted the students to do podcasts. But the assessment was only 10% based on the podcast and 90% based on the assignment. Guess what they spent 90% of their time in? Podcast. They didn't realise it was only worth 10%. So it actually distracted them from the academic reading part that they needed to do. But it was predicated on a good thing. I want them to be interactive, I want them to do this. And they will have got lots of skills, but the assessment didn't test what they gained. But maybe another assessment down the line will be testing what they got at that point. Um, and it's quite interesting, a lot of the small scale, I'll finish on this point, a lot of the small scale testing we've been doing, using lots of different measures, psychometric ones, observational <coughs> ones, perception ones. What's interesting, you can measure points in time, yeah? And you say, oh, I'm using a really reliable, robust tool. It's got a Cronbach's Alpha, a point nine. Oh, I'm so excited. I love high Cronbach Alpha. Gets me out of bed. So it's fantastic. It's reliable. So you can measure it at certain points. But it doesn't tell you what's going on in between. So at that point, it might have been doing that. But it doesn't actually tell you the journey of that individual. So the timing of when you do those points is quite important. And also, a lot of the measures, but many of you in the room will know this, a lot of the measures around various constructs, like star, like self-efficacy, have stayed in trade parts. So some things are stable, and some things are very mobile. 
and they need to be tracked over a period of a long period of time. And they may relate purely to that moment and to that particular module. They may be very, con going back to the notion you talked about context, if I use context in a different way, quite a lot of things are very context dependent indeed. So measures of learning gain that are looking at very general competences can be quite interesting. But it's, I, uh, my friend in Australia, Dave Barrett, would say he has also has a problem that we're not progressively measuring certain gains of students in the way that we assess them at the outcome for their degree. So we don't really know what they have gained along the way because we're not measuring it continuously. So there are loads of problems that we've got to delve into. Um, but my going back and stopping where I started is, are we doing our best to enable learners to bathe, luxuriate, and get down dirty in it? Are we allowing that? They have volition as to what they choose to do, but are we creating those affordances to enable them? And also, are we gatekeeping and doing the critical bit of minding who's falling through and why? And what part is that us and what part is that them? Um, and, and for me, it's that, it's, it's that measure. But I developed this model, came from my undergraduate students who really didn't want to talk to me for the first three or four weeks. So we decided we needed to do something about what did they see as their role and what did I see as my role. And then we got all, and we ended up with doing the, the facilitators and barriers. A lot of it was fear. A lot of their problems were fear. Incredible how, how powerful those emotions are in stopping people having access. Fear of being found out, fear of being stupid. At what age do you stop feeling being stupid? For me, it's 29. I don't know what. At 29, I was quite happy to tell people I didn't know what I wasn't before. But um, it's quite fascinating, those early conversations. And then my last point was, was also in, in trying to interact with, with undergraduates, we also learnt we needed to do things very early. Um, and I've mentioned this in lots of things I've done before. My student experience was a different world. I lived in university. I didn't know what was going on outside. It was my universe. For them, it's, I've talked about it being one finger, and I think it's just their nail. I've got, I've lost, I'm now no longer a finger. They, they've just got a bit of a nail in the university. They, they've got multiple lives. It's all very good. I'm not, saying neg I'm not being negative. But if you want them to know what their entitlement is and what their responsibilities are, that needs to be set out from day dot because they ain't going to change their other four and a half, three course figures for you at uh, a term a semester. So it's how do you capture them about the things that you need them to do? Um, and there's a lot of work at the moment. Some people call it shadow modules. I don't, I'm not really clear. I don't really like that. Where students are running their own parallel training courses alongside the taught delivery as part of their role and responsibility. I like the idea <coughs> of all the students mentoring each other. I really do. Um, but again, we come back to that difficult thing in literature, a bit like the X Factor. And this is where we can't get around it. Certain students are more able to mentor others than some. And you have to manage that within that teaching environment because you're not going to solve that one. That sounds terribly negative to stop. But it's, it's coming through all over the place. 
in all the literature about how do I handle that. And there are clever ways to do that, but it's like another elephant in the room. But I think we can stop there and...